Hey guys, just a reminder that the 2022 Small Town Monsters Kickstarter is happening right now. You can be a part of funding all four of our feature length film productions that are coming out this year. You can get your name in the credits and all that stuff. You can also be a part of helping to fund all the amazing YouTube content we're putting out. The link is in the description. Hit the button, become a backer, be a part of Small Town Monsters. Hello, welcome to The Lore You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists as we discuss the history of inspiration behind and importance of recording and sharing regional tales. Today, I have with me Sean Forker. Hi, Sean. Hi, Heather. How are you? I am all right. How are you? I'm wonderful. It's Valentine's Day. It is. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. It's been a good day. Yeah, good, 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 good. Um, so for those who may not be familiar with you, can you explain your connection to the weird and unusual world of cryptids? Oh, goodness. That goes back a long time since I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. And that's twenty over 20-some 20 years ago uh, when I fell in love with the Bigfoot mystery, Sasquatch, mm-hmm. uh, on a road trip to spend the summer with some family. I, I'm a talker. I wouldn't shut up. So my dad got a book, handed it to me, and the book was Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us by John Green, which is not a typical book you give a nine-year-old, but I've <laughs> been always able to read about my station. And my dad has always had an interest in the paranormal. Growing up, Unsolved Mysteries, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, those shows in search of were always on uh, in the house. So I kind of, I was almost baptized into it because of just the frequency that that stuff was on and just around books that my dad would read and my grandfather. So it's kind of a family thing in a way. I'm the only one that actually decided I'm going to start investigating some of these mysteries. And so Sasquatch Apes Among Us hooked me. John Green's birthday was just the other day, which is, you know, kind of funny, yeah. uh, February 12th. So he was 90, he'd be 95 if he was still alive. Yeah. Uh, and he was a big inspiration for me and his book, because, you know, you got to look, Heather is a newspaper man, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a journalist took these mysteries very seriously. And at first he didn't. At first it was kind of tongue in cheek. He put them in his paper as kind of filler. But as he starts getting these stories, he's like, my God, there's something to this. Yeah. You know, maybe I really start looking into it. And of course, the rest is, you know, history and the volumes he wrote. Sasquatch Stables Among Us is not a tiny book. Yeah. Um there's a lot to it, right? And then the other books he also wrote, uh, Year of the Sasquatch, um, so on and so forth. So John Green was probably the biggest inspiration in that book. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, I met Eric Altman mm-hmm. uh, from the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society mm-hmm. and started field work. Yeah. And I really just fell in love with it even more to the point here we are 2022, and I'm still heavily involved with the search. Yeah. So when you first got that book, what captured your attention about Bigfoot in general? What was it that stuck with you? You know, the stories, you know, I think the first one that stands out in my mind from that book was Abe Canyon, these gold prospectors out there, you know, doing their thing and getting attacked and sieged by these man monkeys, you know, throwing rocks and trying to get through the chinkling of the cabin. I mean, it's a scary story. If you're a kid, mm-hmm. still kind of scary as an adult. Yes. And that story 
you know, kind of, you know, really resonated with me. And then the reenactments from the TV shows, you know, that put it together. But just the fact that there's the potential that we share this world with something that immense, that large. And if it was seen once or twice, maybe that'd be an interesting story. But the fact is, it's still seen, you know, almost every day by someone somewhere in the United States. That's pretty compelling. You know, John Green said it best, even if all the reports we took were garbage, if one was real, Hasn't it all been worth? And it really has. And do, are all the reports we get real reports? Absolutely not. Some of them are, are pretty interesting yarns spun by people that don't have anything better to do. But there are some real interesting stories out there that just kind of captivate and, and make you want to go out and do it. So as a kid, stories like that um, and the fact that there's a whole chapter dedicated to Eastern Sasquatch activity in his book. Uh, in Pennsylvania, that is like, hey, now these things, they're not just in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest, you know, they're in my backyard. Wow, this is this is pretty intense. So that that really stuck me. Then, of course, with the, uh, you know, the internet becoming more prevalent, you have that resource that you can go out and start searching, you find out, wow, not only was there just a couple written in this book, but there's a lot of Bigfoot activity in Pennsylvania. Right. And you don't have to go that far uh, to research it. That, yeah. that was that was something special. Yeah. Had you heard of stories in your area prior to that book or the book was what kind of introduced you to it being out of the Pacific Northwest, like you said? The book was really the, you know, the impetus to get started. I live in a very conservative part of the state. There's a lot of hunters, yeah. um, a lot of outdoorsmen out here. Those are stories that even till this day, you don't get a lot of unless you really build trust and some credibility with people. Right Now that Oh, you know, the last 15 years, people know there's someone out here investigating these things and they're not going to make fun of you right. and they're not going to, uh, you know, just spill your, you know, your garbage to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they trust you and they let you in a little bit. But I can tell you there's not volumes and volumes of them out there. The people that do tell you that these encounters are people that have been hunters in this area for 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. people that would really, if their friends found out they told you about this story, would never live it down. And that's <laughs> right. the kind of people that you'll look for. And you keep their, you know, their information private or whatnot. But the most compelling one I've had, uh, not to jump ahead and hopefully I'm not stealing any of your thunder. <laughs> no. Uh, in, in the group happened a few years ago uh, when we were, you know, still had the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society fully functioning. Mm -hmm. A gentleman that worked for the Department of Fish and Game had a Bigfoot sighting when he was out hunting one morning in November. And he was up in his tree stand and he saw this thing lumber into the field as he had some deer in his sights. And he's like, I've seen all kinds of animals in my job. I've never seen that. Mm -hmm. And it scared him so bad. Like he couldn't wait for it to get out of his vision so he could get out of the tree stand and go. And uh, as he had made subsequent trips to the tree stand, he had noticed something had taken the, the piping that made the ladder to get up to the tree stand and wrapped it around the tree. Wow. Um, not just any kind of animal can do that, <laughs> right. you know, and that was, you know, even more reason for him to call us. And when we went up there, he had no intention of going out in the woods with us. He, he took us to the location, showed us where he was at, and he didn't want to be involved in it anymore. Mm -hmm. And when we got up there and you're talking about 6,000 acres, that's a private hunting lease. Like nobody else has been on this land besides him and a few people. Right. probably over 20 years. So it's not like you can just get in there and, and you know, play around all the time. Mm -hmm. And on just the sincerity of him not wanting to get back into the woods, we finally managed to build up enough confidence with him where he would be out there with us. Yeah. 
And, you know, nothing really happened when we were out there. We saw some interesting things. Researcher Tom Ferentz, Matt Arner, Dustin Kinley, people I do a lot of work with now uh, were out with us. And uh, Rob Hostetter um, and his boys are are now men, (laughs) not boys anymore. Uh, It was a great weekend for us because we were able to get out to a very, you know, fresh sighting location, spend some time out there. And though nothing happened, we were able to build a relationship with the witness uh, to kind of give him some peace of mind, give him some comfort back in his own property. Mm-hmm. But also now put another pin in the map where, hey, we have activity up in this area. What can we find around this area that could, you know, maybe add more to this? Right. Have you found patterns that are seeming to emerge in that particular vicinity? You know, patterns are crazy, right? Because I think patterns are all what you make them. Mm-hmm. You can look at the data, interpret it many different ways. And in my my younger years, we tried to look at that to kind of dispel if there was some migration pattern and Right. I don't think the data shows that there are some people that says it does. Well, if that's the case, why do we still get sighting reports in the wintertime? We don't get any less reports in the winter in Pennsylvania than we do spring or summer mm-hmm. uh, or fall. I don't know who kind of made that up. Maybe we wanted to in our early years to try to prove something. Mm-hmm. The fact is we get sightings all year round. Do we get more sightings at certain times? Yeah, but you also relate that to people being out mm-hmm. in higher volumes at those times. So it's not really a animal thing. It's a us thing. So, right. you know, you kind of got to weigh them together, but are patterns not really, I, I also went on moon cycles for the longest time. Yeah. There are people that'll tell you full moons are a great time for Bigfoot activity. I really don't believe that. I think yeah. the new moon is a much more, um, is a much more better boy. That's great. English is a better time. <laughs> probably if you're looking to have a, a sighting because there's less light. Right, more cover. Right? You have more opportunity and more coverage. And as we know, or we think we know, these things kind of take advantage of that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, built-in subterfuge. They can go and move about freely without being harassed. Why would they want to chance that on nights when the lights are brighter? It doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten any reports where something was more aggressive in nature? Or is it just oh, yeah. usually off? Okay. Can you go into some yeah, of those? I think... No, absolutely. And Stan Gordon, of course, is like the collector of those stories. And it'd be remiss to talk about any of this without Stan Gordon's early work, Dr. Paul Johnson, Joan Jeffers, who's a lady who doesn't get a lot of uh, kudos in the research, but she was very important in the early years. And I think as you know, we talk about getting more and more women involved in the field of cryptozoology, you have to recognize that there have been women involved. Mm-hmm. Joan Jeffers was a very important part of that, but she doesn't get a lot of credit. And it's something I would like to work with Dr. Paul at some point to get a little bit more of her information out there and mm-hmm. just to show how important she really was to yeah. uh, the Bigfoot mystery in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, there are people that have been in court. You always get the, we just had an, a, a, a report that I'm still pretty sure was bogus because the guy never got back to us where he was attacked on his ATV and flipped over. Don't put a lot of merit into that, but it's a great story, but there. Right. In the 70s, uh, Westmoreland County, uh, and Lauren Coleman talks about it in some of his books, where the creature, you know, came out after this vehicle and actually left claw marks on the back of the, uh, on the back of the vehicle. Uh, there are stories like that around here. Do we get so many of them up in my neck of the woods? Not really. The encounters I get up here, or stalking, you know, where they feel like this thing is following them. 
there was a lady up in, in Muncie, not too far from where I live, was riding her bicycle home one day. And on this little ridge along the road, she heard something uh, following her as she was riding. She'd stop. It would still go. And then it threw rocks at her. Mm. Uh, and then she got frightened, ran home. And then later on, she had also noted like things that would happen, like her garbage can was picked up and physically moved and the garbage was taken out mm. and gone through, not ripped open and scattered yeah. everywhere, which to me, that's not a bear. That's something that has some intelligence and sure. not a lot of homeless people out in this area. So it's not like, right. <laughs> you know, out in that specific area where right. that's going to be commonplace either. So mm -hmm. the stalking vocalizations you get some really angry vocalizations out here that just frighten the tarnations out of people mm -hmm. we had one of our own experience when we were out in we call it area uh, 252 which is just named state game lands 252 mm -hmm. it's right behind allenwood federal prison in central pennsylvania which is interesting in itself yeah. there's also three cemeteries out there too mm -hmm. um, one is a uh, revolutionary war cemetery so it's really really old yeah. i'd love to get you out there you'd love that and yeah. uh and we were out there and there's these little man-made lakes that were were created over the years of uh, the area was taken over by eminent domain very similar to point pleasant's tnt area this is what this area is like it has the domes the ammunition domes and everything else out there and it has a lot of high strangeness that happens yeah um in that area and we were out walking towards the backside of this one lake and there were about five of us out there and this God awful scream of nothing I've heard in my life. Just, it was so loud. It was, if you could feel it mm -hmm. and uh, before you could realize what was going on, everybody else had ran away and me and my uh, buddy rich were left there. Like, what do we do? Do we go in after this thing? Do we, what, you know, what, you know, what do we choose at this point? So we hung around a little bit this growl again and we were out of there like we yeah. didn't stick around too far so even as much as you've been involved in bigfoot research uh, i'm not seth breedlove i'm not going to jump out of an atv and ch <laughs> chase after something you no, know which no. <laughs> god no no i'm not that gutsy mm. i'm a little fat so my speed ain't going to be that great to begin with um i'm the guy you trip to get away and <laughs> um. i feel like uh you know, have there been missed opportunities because of that? Probably. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. What Interesting are, vocalizations. So that's pretty and common. And sightings. And the yeah, rock and throwing. And just your general. Yeah. And the general, you know, run of the mill. I saw something I can't explain here. I I, I would be, I, I swear I'd be making it up if I said there was anything that was like so glamorous as like a habituation situation or anything up in this part of the state where, where I live that we've been, that, that's been brought to us yet. You got to remember, it's only been like 10, 15 years where people have, you know, just starting to get comfortable up this way to talk about it in a very conservative part of the state. And that has to mean something to folks because these are people that just aren't going to spill their business to everybody. Yep. Yeah. I'm very familiar with living in areas like that. Um, Absolutely. <clears throat> So when was the first time that you went out like Bigfooting, actually investigating? Oh, well, God, I did my own little things around here probably in the late 90s. And I was young, mm -hmm. probably shouldn't go out and do stuff like that by yourself when you're a kid. But I live, you can't walk outside without seeing a mountain somewhere, you know, right. here. Uh, but really, my first formal introduction was an outing with the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society in 05, mm -hmm. where I went with uh, Eric Altman and the team. Dave Dragason, who's not with us anymore. Uh, it's a lot of our 
Bigfoot and friends are starting to not be with us anymore. Just sad. That's the problem with being yeah. friends with old people. They die yeah. uh, before you, which is tragic. Um, and we went out to Keystone State Forest, which is in the southwest part of, on the ridge, southwest part of PA, and met the individuals out there. Had a really good weekend. Uh, I was there with Ranger Tim Cassidy. He's a folks maybe that have been involved in the field a long time may recognize his name. He's not very uh, active or not very internet active, I should say, in, in today's world. But back then, he was a very big name in, in Bigfoot and PA. And he and I and Dave and Cindy uh, had gone out and done a couple things. And what was interesting is we were driving up to the top of the chestnut or top of the air, this chestnut ridge. And we stopped and saw these folks that were just driving around. And Dave, being the kind of guy he was, just starts conversation. And, you know, they're like, what are you guys doing out here? And Dave told him, you know, he had no, was unashamed about what we were doing. And the guy just looked at him and goes, yeah, we hear these things all the time. Oh, yeah. It's like it's nothing. Place. Yeah. Yeah. Commonplace out there, right? So we hear these things all the time. And we went up to the top, sat out that night, a lot of, a big moon, a lot of light, didn't really have anything happen to us. They did a, a bear did saunter out and kind of walk away, do its thing. Uh, the couple, I think the next day, uh, I was with Cindy, my buddy, Matt, um, and Ranger Tim, and we had gone off into this trail and followed it through. And we had never been in this park before. So we had the intention of coming back because the weather was starting to get a little rough. Mm -hmm. So I was marking this area with Tootsie Roll wrappers. And I remember that because, I, you, know, uh, you know, it's all we had and I was hungry. And um, <laughs> as we go through and, you know, decide we're going to call it for, for a little while, yeah. uh, we went out. It came back a little while later and it looked like the whole area was just ripped up and like messed up. I don't know if we, you know, angered something or what, or if the wind had come through and done some damage. Uh, but the only reason we knew we were back in the same spot was because of the Tootsie Roll wrappers that you can find on some of the damaged trees. So we follow this path all the way up to the top and we come to this kind of plateau area. And there's these things that look like nests. It's like, couple of them scattered around so you know not thinking of what we were doing we decided tim and i ranger tim and i decided we were going to go investigate one and as we're in there poking around at one tim stops and all of a sudden i feel like i'm going to get really sick like i'm going to like i'm going to throw up and tim is like hit with this like euphoria like he's like you can see him like light up he's awful energy like his adrenaline's going and then out of nowhere heather it sounded like something just threw a bulldozer through the brush Mm. and fight or flight had kicked in yeah. and I chased after it. What mm. was that sound? And the next thing, you know, you know, Eric Altman and them are, had caught up with us and they're chasing after me chasing after this thing because Eric's pissed because I'm chasing something <laughs> and I'm not being safe at all. Right. Right. And uh, we, I chased this thing out into a, you know, one of those power line clearings. Mm -hmm. And you know, we, at one point, everybody thought we had surrounded this, whatever it was that we were chasing. And to no avail, there was nothing there when we all managed to kind of start converging to it. We're hanging out there a little bit, and then the weather starts getting a little rough again. In fact, a tornado, is, you can actually see the funnel clouds starting to form uh, as we were out there. Uh, as we were leaving that area, one of the members of the team said they saw a man-like figure standing on the other side of the power line clearing watching us as we were taking off. I didn't see it. Yeah, I, I can't tell you to this day. The person who said it was very reputable. Yeah, uh, but that experience was probably my first experience that I had 
where I was like, wow, did we just, you know, maybe stumble upon something that was, you know, really compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, so that, that kind of kept the juices going too for a while. Like well, that experience sure. is like, wow, yeah. man, I got to <laughs> stay involved in this. Yeah. And up until I, I didn't, a couple of years later, we went back out there and we've had, we had rocks thrown at us. Uh, Billy Willard and I, we were actually walking back because it started to rain again. Like I'm the rainy day squatcher. I don't know why, <laughs> but it loves the rain when I'm, and I don't mind it, but everybody else kind of doesn't like the rain. I don't mind yeah. it so much, but as we're walking back, this like softball sized rock comes, you know, just chossed right between us. Mm-hmm. And if it would have hit one of us, it'd have hurt really bad. It was a sizable rock. And, uh, but that, like, that was the only thing that we had experienced on that trip. And so I can't say a lot of times where I've been to the Ridge, like I've been to there, you know, a decent amount of times there are many a times been out there and it's been nothing, yeah. nothing happens, but there are times out there you go and then you have little things that happen like that. And they're like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. It's just a special to place. You, right. To keep you going. Yeah. Just keep. That's the problem. <laughs> it's enough to just keep you going, like uh-huh. enough to hook you. Uh-huh. Yeah, just like you said. Um, those, truck, sorry. No, no, you're fine. The um, the nests that you're talking about, how large were they? They were large. They were enough where a large-sized person could lay down. In them. Mm-hmm. And back then, like that was 05. Like, besides it being something really cool, nobody was really – Yeah, I, I would be – challenge to say that was a big thing people were looking at right like nests and nest the nest talk didn't start coming out till years later when you have the guys out in the olympic peninsula uh you know really documenting and mm-hmm. you know the olympic project you know making nests you know focal point so at hindsight being what it is now i could go, i'd love to say tim let's you know like let's get on this thing and, and what could we have done so many things we could have done differently at that point now that just didn't really think Bigfoot at that, that point in time, you know, just, they were really cool nests at that, but they were large, but yeah, who knows? Yeah. It's like tree structures, like the, the X's and everything. We've been seeing them for years. And there was a guy by the name of Tom Lancaster, who uh, he was a geologist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think Tom's in this, uh, in this study anymore. Um, He had a really good, like, like marker documented theory of what he felt these tree structures are. And he really felt they were navigational markers. Mm. And like, and he had done a study because of once he had found and marked and drawn. And, uh, and if I go back to my old podcast, I might be able to find an interview where I had with him where he could, you know, in his own words, he could talk more about what he thought. But I think the thing is I've had the pleasure of being in this field when these things that are now larger conversations were just kind of, eh, that's interesting. Let's make a note of it, you know? Right. Yeah. And then you I've... kick yourself because like <laughs> I said, do they mean more now? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you've brought up the chestnut Ridge. Can you explain a little mm-hmm. bit about why that is such a unique place in Pennsylvania? Well, if I could explain why it was a unique place, we would be, you know, solving it, but it is a <laughs> unique place, right? It, mm-hmm. it is uh, a really fascinating chunk of Pennsylvania, uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, mountain range. And it's just for years, as long as I have been alive and be- oh, I've been alive before that, stories, not just of Bigfoot, but of strange lights, weird creatures. There's a story of a dragon out there on the Chestnut Ridge. Like, if you can believe that. Uh, you know, and every time I talk to one of my fellow researchers, 
you know, there's something new that happens out on the Chestnut Ridge. There's a man named Sam Sherry. He's not with us anymore. He passed away in the early 2000s. He was a uh, World War II vet, took some pretty serious bodily damage in World War II and was kind of a, I don't want to say like a homesteader, but he lived out there on the ridge with his wife and he, he had the Chestnut, Big, Ch- Chestnut Ridge Bigfoot uh, Research Center out there. And he just collected stories and had his own encounter in the 80s and, and uh, at the Loyal Hannah Creek, the one that kind of where he talks about it, like being almost like a native type person that approached his vehicle, kind of s- screamed at spit at him and, and whatnot. But he collected a lot of stories. Bob France, who's another researcher who's lived out on the ridge. He collected them. These are guys that did it in like the 60s and 70s and the 80s. I wasn't even around in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I didn't come along till 85. So like there's 25 years of history plus before I'm alive that you can even go back and research. So when you have an area that's got that much recorded and documented event, like it's hard to dismiss it as not being a special place. Right. Why? I have no idea. It's not far off from Pittsburgh, right? But mm-hmm. it's a very remarkable place. It feels weird when you're out there. It's got a different energy. Yeah. You know, people for forever that I've known can say, hey, you know, it's all about ley lines or it's all about courts or, you know, whatever. Like, I, I don't know any of that crap. All I right. know is that strange things are happening and I'm, I want to be a part. Of it. I want to get out there and, and be involved. And, and UFOs, like it's still to this day, a very trafficked area for high strangeness. Mm -hmm. When you've been out there, what are some of the high strangeness things that you've personally experienced? Yeah, I've had the the Bigfoot activity out there that, you know, I've talked about that all happened out on the bridge. Uh, Strange lights just, and I've seen them in Clearfield County, Pennsylvania too, like Flashes of lights for no reason at all, non-localized light, just push. And then the first thing you do is you start looking at your watch if you missed any time, you know, like (laughs) that's, and I've had that happen a handful of times. Um, People have seen, not I, but uh, researchers that I've worked with, Heather, have seen things come in and out of portals Mm. there. I'm a science kind of guy. I'm a flesh and blood kind of guy. When you start telling me those things, like the, my instinct is to just throw up walls and go, okay, this guy's full of crap. (laughs) But then the more you hear it over time, like even the science part of you is like, no, come on, man. Like cut down your walls a little bit and think like if this, if people are experiencing this, they're either all taking the very same really cool drug that you might (laughs) want to try or like something is happening. right? Right. That, that, there is something to it. And I'm stuck in that. And I've been stuck there for years and it frustrates people to no end who work with me that like, just as they think I'm getting ready to make a step into a paranormal, <laughs> like I pull myself back. Cause it's just not something that in my world, like it's something that I'm willing to entertain yet. Like to me, you know, science is still Supreme. And like, we can't even prove this thing exists fully without, without com- complicating it even more with these extraordinary uh, other abilities that you, they claim it, the ability to open portals, the ability to mind speak, the ability to do all these things that no other mammal has, but for right. some reason, Bigfoot can do it. Like to me, I have a hard time with that. That doesn't mean I'm right. Yeah. That, you know, it's just what I believe. And until I, I get more or I experience that myself, mm-hmm. I just, even if I experience it myself, I don't know if I believe it. Like I need somebody <laughs> else there to verify because 
he'd been in this so long, he could start having mental breakdowns. I could see that being a, a, a subsequent of, you know, activity of, you know, being out in the ridge too long or being out anywhere too long. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know, Heather, I need a little bit more before I'm willing to commit that it's something more than flesh and blood. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think paranormal things happen. Right. Like I'm a believer in ghosts and, and that sort of thing. I've done some investigating in that respect. Mm-hmm. I just, with, with my Bigfoot, I'd like my Bigfoot plain Jane, big, right, <laughs> big upright, hairy hominid, right? Like that's all I right. need it to be right now. Cause yeah. anything else is just silly to try to add on to mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. So we've talked about the chestnut Ridge and then closer to where you are located, which is in Northern PA, right? North, North central Pennsylvania. North yep. Central PA. Okay. Aside from those two areas, have you gotten stories from other places in Pennsylvania? That's like just really unique kind of out of nowhere where you would least expect to have a story pop up. It's a Bigfoot sighting or even maybe high strangeness. Yeah. Like, so I spent a lot of time of my research out in Clearfield County, which is up in the Northern part of the state. I guess you could almost call it central. It's about an hour and a half from where I live. Mm -hmm. And it's actually where I had my encounter in 2012, that my encounter, it changed my life and almost made me quit Bigfooting. Mm -hmm. I was very, um, shaken up by what happened and i experienced with two of my friends that were out with me that weekend we had a a a sighting encounter that really just changed the way i i felt about pursuing this mystery um i still get a little shaken up talking about i don't talk about it a lot just Mm -hmm. because it was very personal and and uh i more traumatic to me than i ever let on i think at first besides my knee jerk i'm done with this like it it did have resonating effect over the years but that area heather uh clearfield county rockton mountain has had hundreds of bigfoot sightings over the years in fact they still collect them up there at the bar for us there's a bar called over the mountain uh it's a great place good food uh steve the owners of steve and kim the husband and wife that own it are fantastic people and spent some time up there, did a couple presentations, always loaded. They put an event up, people come share their stories with us as town halls before town halls were things. Right. And so the, the story, the history is there. You're talking about probably the fifties to the, to today, maybe before that, but to my knowledge, probably the fifties were the earliest sightings up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a perfect place to go and look and investigate. And the area we went was off, uh, was off the highway, probably about a mile and a half, two miles in off the highway, and then another mile and a half mile in on foot. And nobody's going to mess with you out there because it's just so desolate up in the top of the mountain. Right. Nobody's that dumb, in my opinion. Right. But we had, uh, it was myself, my brother Ray, my buddy Dustin, who's been on several Bigfoot event, you know, trips with us, uh, Eric Altman, David Rupert. And Ryan Cavalline, who makes uh, Mountain Devil movies, they were all out there with us to set up for what was going to be a weekend of uh, research. And as we're settling down for the night, uh, Eric, Dave, and Ryan play some game cameras, and then they left. And it was just Ray and Dustin and I that were going to camp out in this little meadow by ourselves. Um, then they were going to come back the next day, and we were going to you know work that area the weekend. And we built a fire, just kind of sitting there hanging out. And it's almost to the point where it's dark, but it's not completely dark yet. And you still have the light from the fire. And Dustin and I are, you know, facing each other and we're sitting there and then Ray's off on his own. And as we're sitting there, I noticed something run through like just a slice of our campsite and it ran mm. through our campsite. 
And the thing is, Heather, how it moved was so fluid. Like it wasn't bulky or it moved. And I, I can explain it as it like glided and it was so smooth in its movement. I actually, I, to this day, I still call it the sloth man. I don't call it a Bigfoot. I call yeah. it a sloth. Just because of how its arms glided as it moved, it was just so, if you could think of something to put that was the most perfectly adapted for its environment to move through an area, yeah. it would be whatever that was and how it moved through that, through that terrain was just so impressive to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a lighter colored, it wasn't dark. Uh, yeah. It wasn't white, but it was a lighter color and it was not overly tall, maybe a little over six and a half feet, seven feet tall. And it just glided through there. Not, like I said, not bulky or built, just so mm-hmm. fluidly moving. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got up and Dustin at the same time looks at me and gets up and he had saw the same thing. Ray didn't see it at all. So he and I run over and we run to the edge of the campsite and you can still hear this thing like taken off to the woods. Well, I'm like, oh, hot damn, that was really cool. What was this? Like, So we're all pumped. And so we just sit there a little while longer. Nothing's really happening. We're like, well, let's put the fire out and let's go to bed. And we'll get up at like three or four in the morning and we'll start our activities. Because, you know, sightings happen, you know, a lot around the early morning hours. Mm -hmm. We're going to think of it. We figured we'd get an early start in the day. So we go in. We're all three sharing a tent. It's a, a smaller tent, nothing major. And uh, we're lying there for a while. And all of a sudden I hear something walking through the campsite. And I'm assuming at this point, Dustin and Ray are both asleep and I'm laying there and I I hear it moving again. And this is something walking. It's not something on four legs. It's something walking deliberately through our campsite. So as I'm getting ready to say something, I see Dustin's cell phone light pop open. <laughs> so I'm like, you hearing this? He goes, Yeah, I've, I've been listening to it. I'm like, Why well, the hell didn't you say something? <laughs> so Ray, still sleeping. Uh, I love he's, he's my brother. I love Ray, and uh, so we're still hearing it. And Dustin's like, I'm going to get out and take a look. I'm like, Okay, you do that. I'll stay here in case you die. And as he's getting <laughs> up to go out, he gets out. We're looking. Well, he doesn't get out yet. What prompted him to really get out was all of a sudden. I start seeing this orangish glow on the outside of the, of the tent. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. So Dustin opens it up and something had put the logs back on our fire. We had taken the logs mm. off the fire. Yeah. Something had moved the logs and put them back on the fire. Wow. I'm instantly creeped out at that point. Like what mm-hmm. the hell is going on? What, what, this is something with some intelligence, right? Mm. So Dustin gets out. I'm putting my boots on. He yells, Hey, throw me my gun. So like an idiot, I threw him his gun. Like, you know, safety <laughs> is an important thing. And as I go to get out, he goes, Holy shit, look. And as I look, there's that same creature that ran through our, our campsite earlier, ran up this little hillside. And as I get out, you can hear this thing tearing ass all the way around the perimeter of this little meadow that we're, we're staying. And my skin, I'm, I'm getting the goosebumps now off it. Like just the, I don't know why about the way I felt, but it was just maybe because the fire had started something and moved the logs back under the fire. Yeah. But I just got this horrifying sense of vulnerability, like mm-hmm. nothing we could do would stop this thing if it wanted to do something to us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, cell phone service isn't great up there. I ran to the center of the, of the meadow we're staying. We'd call it the meadow. And I had like two bars. Of, the only place in that meadow you get service. Mm-hmm. So I call, uh, I called Dave's 
wife, mm-hmm. Carrie, and she was so great. I should still send her a medal or something for being so cool for us. She's a researcher herself. She just wasn't out that night with Dave. Yeah. And I'm Carrie, I don't know if Dave and them had gotten home yet, but can you send them back here? I don't want to be here anymore. Can you get them? I, I want to get the hell out of here. Can you get them, please? And so she said, oh, let me see where they're at. Let's see. Like, so she calls, they had, they hadn't made it home yet. They had stopped it over the mountain <laughs> to, uh, you know, have a couple of drinks because it wasn't that late. You know, they could still think, I think at this point, maybe it was around midnight. This was happening. Mm-hmm. And it was going to take them probably 35, 40 minutes to get in there. So as we're sitting there waiting for them to get in huddled in the middle of this meadow, each one of those facing a different way, there's something still running like, like, sorry, could you say that again? My watch, sorry. <laughs> There's something still running like around the perimeter. And like, I just wanted to stop. So they finally make it. They come down and they, you know, Dave's a really good guy. And I think Dave could talk me into doing anything, to be honest with you, because they managed to talk us into staying longer. So <laughs> yeah. I would, I was just done. I wanted to get out of it. So they got us calmed down. Like, listen, you guys were out here for a reason. This is what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Like, let you know, let's just stay the course, man. I'm like, okay, Dave. And uh, so Dave and Ryan hung out a little longer. We go back into the tent. Nothing's happening. And he radios into us because we had our handle radios. He goes, we're going to go. He goes, if you need anything, you know how to get us. Uh, but I think you guys are going to be fine. And we have game cameras out there. So whatever happens, you know, we'll get, get it on film. <laughs> <Which is always laughs> right, great. right. Yeah, that's we'll get, good... we'll get you guys getting ripped apart on film. <laughs> and because uh, that's just where my mind goes. Like, we're mm-hmm. going to get destroyed. Uh, they left about maybe an hour later. Here comes something walking to our campsite again. And I had enough. And I don't even know if the tent was open or if I made an opening in the tent, but I jumped out. Dustin jumped out. He had his gun. Ray's awake. Finally, you know, God, what the hell? I'm missing all this stuff. We'll quit sleeping. And so we go to the center where we were at and we could see something off. Kind of peeping out from behind a tree. And I said, the dust, I'm like, shoot it. Just shoot the damn thing. Shoot it now. Like, and Dustin's like, I can't. Dustin has military training. He's not going to pull the trigger on anything. He doesn't know. Still not convinced they couldn't have been somebody out there. Cause that would be a terrible thing. Somebody's pranking you and then you kill them. That wouldn't right. be great. But I didn't care. I was just afraid and I wanted right. to be left alone. And not only has this thing visited us once, but it's back. Mm-hmm. So I kind of run to the edge of the the meadow and I yell into the woods like if you're messing with us come out here it'll be fine but if you don't mess with you know you keep messing with us we're just going to start opening fire like I at this point I would have stole the gun and started shooting but Mm -hmm. uh, Dustin had thrown a glow stick out into the woods a military grade glow stick and something had picked it up and threw it on the ground and took off uh yeah, the glow that that was the part that I think got dusted, like something had picked it up. And what's interesting is on that other side of the meadow, there's like a two and a half to three foot drop off. Mm-hmm. And whatever it was, was large enough, like you could see it over that drop off to be walking around with it and just kind of chucked it. And that was it. We were ready to get out of there. So we only had a couple hours left till daylight. We sat up and waited for it to hit daylight. Threw everything in one of the Rubbermaid totes we we brought with us, and we hauled ass back to my van, which is about a mile from that spot. And you know, I'm a larger guy, so we did that in six minutes. I swear to God, we were out of that meadow back to my car in six minutes. Wow. 
-hmm. And because of just the fear of I, I had from that thing, I called my wife on my way home. I said, I'm coming home. Uh, I don't really want to talk about it, but I'll see you in a while. And so if I'm coming home, I would plan to be there for four days. I didn't even make it one day. Something, you know, obviously happened. I got home. I called Eric Altman. I told him what happened. I said, I'm done with this. I was doing a radio show at the time. I said, I'm done with everything. I don't want to do the radio show. I don't want to do any of this anymore. Because whatever is out there, Heather, scared me so bad. Not just the fact that it might just seem like a Bigfoot story to some people. But there were three of us. It came back yeah. twice. Uh, and it, I just really felt like it was playing with us and toying with us. Mm -hmm. And we had a handgun and threatened to shoot it with a handgun. And it still didn't go away. Like, right. it freaked me out. And it took me a long time. I didn't go back to that spot until 2016. So it took me four years to go back to that location um, to really and get comfortable going out into the woods and research against. There was a period of like four years where I didn't do much besides just read things on because mm -hmm. it scared me so bad. It was just horrifying. And, and to this day, I still get the, you know, the proverbial goosebumps about it because mm -hmm. it was just horrible. Um, yeah. And I've never had anything since then really happen. Maybe a couple vocalizations I might've heard, but nothing that intense. Sure. And that happened completely in clear helpless. Yeah, completely yeah. helpless moment. Well, um, that's the feeling, that mm -hmm. helplessness. And like, if what's going to stop this thing? Yeah. So what happened that allowed you to come back? Like, did you talk to someone? Did you read other reports? Like, what slowly got you to come back into the field after you're like, I'm done, I'm out? My own stubbornness, I think. <laughs> I don't like to just, I don't like to give up on things. I don't like to abandon stuff I've spent a good deal of my, my life with. Like, you know, some people, you know, this might be it, Bigfoot. The popularity of it comes in waves, right? Like it's a very pop cultural thing. Uh, for some people, it's great. It's a laugh and it's a gas and it's cool. And you can put it on a lunchbox and a t-shirt and sell it. But for me, it really is a science. And there's like so much of this that we don't understand yet. So much to this mystery that needs to be solved. I wasn't doing anybody any favors by sitting on the sidelines and I wanted to continue to be a part of it. I guess I just, it kind of, it just took me a while, but I got my confidence back. Right. Yeah. Like my wife saying, you're not really happy unless you're part of this and doing it. I, all my friends, while they're outgoing, doing all these things, I'm staying at home because at this point, at what point does your fear just become an excuse to not do some of the things you want to do? Yeah. It's scary, but why didn't I know that going into it? Like at, at some point you have to, you know, reconcile that this is part of it. It's going to happen and you just got to move on. And that's what I did. And I had great researchers that, you know, Dave and Carrie Rupert, Brian and Terry Seach. These names are very prevalent names in uh, Pennsylvania research, but they're, they're my friends and Eric and all their, you know, and the fact that I don't toot my own horn, but I'm a pretty decent level-headed researcher, like, yeah. That he feel needs me in some way, shape, or form, I guess. There's a need for me, and I want to be there to be be there for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it gets me exercise. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, all of it comes together just about perfectly. It. That's right. <laughs> um, so at the end of every episode, I ask my guests to tell me a story. Um, usually I set up a scenario. So um, let's say that I've come to your neck of the woods instead of having you drive down to Chestnut Ridge or something. I'm coming to you. Can you tell me a story? It doesn't have to be Bigfoot related, 
anything mm-hmm. spooky, whatever, in your area that I might want to hear, and then we could go check it out. Yeah, uh, that would be uh, Area 252, State Game Lands, Elvira, Pennsylvania. It's uh, what's left of an old abandoned town. It was turned into the uh, Ordnance Banking Facility in World War II. Um, just over the years, so many strange things have happened there. But the one thing that I that happened there that I did experience was the ghost lights, the ghost headlights. One night while doing a Bigfoot investigation out there, my research partner, Ernie Delp, and I were coming back. And it's a long road. Just one main road, Heather. You go all the way to the end. It stops right as it butts against the prison land. Mm-hmm. And as you drive back, there's a couple different roads that offshoot, but it's just one main road. So to get in out, you have to follow that main road. And I know nothing had followed us in and nothing was back where we were because we had come through it. And as Ernie and I are heading out of Elvira for the night, out of nowhere, these headlights appear behind us. Nowhere for them to come from. And they followed us for like probably a good two minutes before they just fizzled out to nothing. And I'd always thought people were full of crap about that stuff. But I witnessed these ghost headlights only once, only once. But I witnessed them, and uh, it would be very interesting to go back and see if it would happen again. The yeah. ghost headlight. Yeah. Is that something that's typical in that area? Like other people have seen that? Or... Other people have. Other people have seen it, and I've, I've experienced once. And I, again, science, like what the heck sure. is, what would do that? It was really yeah. just a really cool story. It is cool. Is there a theory as to like what, like who's, who it is or what it is or? Not really, because the people I talk to about the town of Elvira don't approach any of it from a paranormal. It's all a historical oh. contextual thing. There's not a lot of people, aside from paranormal investigators mm-hmm. that do research in there, that I just don't, it's going to sound terrible, I don't trust very well because they're not objective about it, right? Mm-hmm. When you're a research paranormal person, you want these things to happen. You want them mm-hmm. to exist. So you'll grasp onto anything for it to, to stay yeah. real. I experienced it. It was real for me. And uh, I would like to know what the story is behind it myself. Maybe we'll figure it out together. You never know. Yeah, let's do it. I'm down. How about it? I'm game. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, can you tell us where we can find you and keep tabs on your activity? Yeah, absolutely. Facebook, social media. I'm socially active. Facebook.com slash Sean Forker, my name. Uh, I don't use any pseudonyms or cool handles. I'm just me. Uh, and then I do my podcast on Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, Sasquatch Experience. You can also find I've been doing that since 2005. It's a long time for a podcast. How many episodes you got in? Well, we took a break for a while. But, oh, oh well, our old, the old first podcast, over 100. This one, we're working up to episode 46 tonight. We'll nice. record it. Congratulations. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. And congrats to you. I love this. The lore you know. Aww, thank you. Thank it. you. I'm having fun with it. Um, you have thanks to. For, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for taking time to talk with me. Um, it's my pleasure. And for all of the listeners or viewers, you can like, subscribe, comment below. You can email me, Heather, at smalltownmonsters.com. And hey, we have something called a Kickstarter running right now. So if you could go check that out and support us, that would be awesome so we can keep doing content like this yes thank you um all right so until next time